You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with Joe Kerr and Sonia Ruparel. Both Joe and Sonia work for Turn to Us, uh, which is a poverty charity based here in the UK that works with people in financial hardship, helping them to access advice and information uh, so that they can claim benefits to which they're entitled. And Joe is directly Director of Impact and Innovation at the organisation, and Sonia is the Director of Programmes and Partnerships. Uh, and I sat down for a chat with Joe and Sonia um, a little while back now to talk about the work that Turn to Us does in addressing poverty issues here in the UK and kind of how they go about that and what that meant in terms of their views on the nature and causes of poverty. And we talked quite a bit about the impact that COVID had had on them as an organisation and also on the people that they work with and the way in which they uh, address the, the causes that they're working on. Um, We also talk quite a bit about digital transformation, both the digital transformation that was already underway at Turn to Us and the ways in which the COVID pandemic has kind of accelerated that and perhaps uh, changed some aspects of it. Um, We talk quite a bit about participation and co-production, which is a big part of Turn to Us's approach. And we also talked about the balance between addressing the symptoms of issues and campaigning or advocating for more fundamental reform to address the same issues and sort of how those two things uh, interplay. So without further ado, let's go into the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm here with Joe Kerr and Sonia Ruparel. Hi, both of you. Hello, great to be here. And great to have you here. Um, and uh, Joe and Sonia are here from Turn to Us, um, which is a charity focusing on poverty issues here in the UK. Um, but maybe the best place to start is if you could both say a bit about Turn to Us and what the organisation does and also kind of what role you play there. Um, and maybe Sonia, if you could go first. Sure. Um it's great to be here. So turn to us. So I'm the, sorry, I should start with who I am. I'm the Director of Programmes and Partnerships. I've been with Turn to Us for a year and a half. Um, and we are a national charity providing very practical support to people dealing with financial hardships and particularly those facing life-changing events and shocks that are going to affect their finances. Um, so, and we also sort of collaborate with others to really try to support the kind of causes um, of financial hardship. So we're not just dealing with the symptoms, but also the causes. Um, so that's a kind of top line and Joe can add. Absolutely. So um, my role with Turn to Us is um, that I'm the Director of Impact and Innovation. And that's a new directorate for uh, the organization. Um, so it was set up at the beginning of 2020. Um, and we are looking at uh, understanding the impact of all of our activities and then looking to improve that impact working across the whole of the organization. And in, in some areas, the way that we will improve our impact is by building new innovations and kind of in increasing um, the track record of innovation that the organization has had to date. Um, and, and what a time to kind of bring in those elements to the organization. We've, we've certainly had our um, impact tested over the last year and we are a historic organization. So I think we'll be celebrating our 125th anniversary next year. And it's maybe fair to say that certain activities like our grant giving are kind of running and running for, for years without really looking at that, that impact. So um, that's a the sort of new direction of the organisation, um, really uh, working in partnership with Sonia and her directorate. 
Great. Yeah. And I want to pick up on, on some of that around some of the, the innovation that's going on and particularly some of the work around you know digital transformation as well, which I think feels very relevant to a lot of organizations at the moment. Um, I guess the, the first thing I wanted to, to talk about a bit was the, the impact of COVID. I mean, obviously, it's affected many, many organizations in, in the charity sector and the people and communities that, that they work with. What for you have been the biggest impacts both on, on the charity yourselves, but also on the work that you've had to do and the people you're working with? Um, maybe Sonia, you could say a bit about that first. Sure. Um, and I think... I think I think we're still yet to see a lot of the impacts and I think that we've got to kind of contextualize it and we don't know long term how this is going to continue to affect us um but we um we've seen quite a tremendous upsurge in demand for our services which is of no surprise um and as Joe said we've started to look at what does that really mean for us and what's the impact we're currently having with our um, our work and who are we actually reaching and are we reaching those who have been worst affected um, so we saw a kind of a massive increase in use of our benefits calculator, for example, so many people were thrown into a situation that probably they'd never anticipated being or been in before where suddenly they needed to kind of look at what their entitlements and rights were. Um, and we had um, an exponential demand for our grant making. So it's been quite, um, quite considerable. So the impact has been big on in terms of our, our responses um, and how we've had to scale up quite rapidly and in a time when the staff were all impacted also. Um, and, um, and also, I think I'll probably leave Joe to talk about some of the research and stuff that we've been doing, but there's quite a lot of evidence that we're, we're bringing out now to see like who has been worst impacted and from a programmatic perspective what that's meant for us is to is to look at that research the research that we've done the research that others have done like running me to go well actually who has been worst affected and what is our role in supporting those people and so we've, we're launching a new program now um, with um, partners um, around supporting those from Black African and Bangladeshi communities very specifically because we've noticed that those communities from the research that we've seen and the impact that we've been having um, really have been less able to access services and less um, likely to access their actual entitlements, what they're entitled to. So, so we're trying to, to target our programming and think harder about how how we do that as we go forward. And as I said, I think just keeping a real eye, there's been some fascinating stuff um, the New Economics Foundation put out some stuff quite recently about, you know, the kind of longer term impact. And it's likely that, you know, that a third of the country almost are going to be struggling financially. And what does that really mean for us much longer term? So there's that kind of crisis response stuff that we've gone into. But now we're starting to think, what about the longer term? What does this really mean for our business as usual work as we move forward? Joe might want to add. We'll want to add. Yeah, Absolutely. So in terms of our understanding of the different people, different groups impacted and how that impacts, how we've seen that impact change over time, I think right at the beginning of the pandemic, we were, uh, we were able to understand that this wouldn't just be a health crisis, that this was a, an economic crisis that would deeply affect people's lives. Um, and we, we maybe didn't foresee the amount of time that that would, um, the, the, the time span that that would kind of be over, but definitely um, right from the beginning, having conversations with people who were telling us, um, if I have to um, self-isolate how am I going to be able to, you know, um, afford to pay my bills and feed my family because I won't be able to work? If I am in lockdown, you know, I don't work from home. If I am at home all the time, my bills are going to go up and I will not be able to um, afford to pay them because I'm, I'm used to being out of the house and therefore my bills being lower. And these are the things that, you know, <laughs> the three of us in this, this call don't have to think about day to day. You know, there were plenty of things that we were struggling with all through the pandemic, I'm sure, and all of your listeners would have been struggling with, but it's not the, the, the reality for lots of people in the UK through the last year and now is that this is about putting food on the table of their families and paying their bills. So, you know, for the stats fans, one in five people struggling to pay their bills now, one in six people struggling to afford food now, 
one in seven struggling to afford rent or mortgage payments. So really, really concerning. And if we're looking ahead um, with furlough and different schemes coming to an end, um, this is only going to get worse. You know, we're, we're fighting at the moment to try and keep the £20 uplift to universal credit. We know it's, it's um, staying around maybe six months longer than a lot of people thought. And we think it should be kept, you know, indefinitely because benefits were too low before the pandemic. And this time has shown us that people need that money in their pockets. So, you know, a lot of issues and specifically to, to Sonia's points around the different groups of people affected. We know that Black, Asian and minoritized ethnic people are have been more affected by the pandemic in lots of ways. And the financial element is a big part of that. We know single parents have been most affected, have been really affected. Younger people, people with existing disabilities, pre-existing conditions, of course. So that's, you know, the, the people that are marginalised within society anyway, who are coming out of this pandemic worse off. And the other element just mentioned is, you know, our well-being. We can probably all see that our anxiety levels are a little bit worse. Um, but if people are struggling with their finances and all of those different elements that we've said, not being able to put food on the table, pay bills, etc., then your well-being is going to be worse anyway. So adding that the effects of COVID to that, we are really seeing a, um, a, a mental health crisis linked to an, an economic crisis that I think is really going to weigh on people um, in the coming months and um, you know it's a it's kind of a, an odd thing to say to be pleased to be able to play a role in um, helping recovery um, but it's it is a probably a feeling of the right place at the right time being working for an organization like Turn to Us and the programs that we deliver. And, and do you think as a result, you know, obviously you say that the impacts of the pandemic have uh, obviously affected people's poverty levels, but those effects have not been felt equally across different communities or you know, across different geographies. And there are wider impacts as well in terms of things like well-being and mental health. Has Does that reflect things that you were already thinking of in your work? I mean, had you already had a sense of how the effects of poverty were, were actually needed to be understood in a more fine grained way and also that there are these wider benefits or, you know, have those those kinds of things become more central to, to your work and will continue to be in the future, do you think? Um, sure. I mean, I think um, we already had that understanding. I think what this has done is given us much more data and information to be able to act on it quicker. Um, so our strategy talks about um, we know that financial health is critical, but unless people have so many other building blocks in their lives, then they're not going to be able to thrive. And at the heart of a lot of that is social justice. Um, so it's actually tackling the kind of systemic issues that keep people like people unequal in society, that unless you tackle it at the same time as really supporting those immediate needs that people have, um, that that need will continue. As Joe said, we've been making grants for 100 years and um, another organisation we work with has done a fantastic analysis looking at what those grants have been made for, of and they're a similar organisation to us and they've been giving money for people to have food and basic goods for 100 years and so have we and it's kind of like actually and we could be doing that for another 100 years unless actively as a sector we come together and tackle the root causes of injustice in society so I think what the pandemic has done is made that narrative stronger um, more and more people are seeing that in inequity that inequality in society um, there's been a you know a tremendous swelling of support, community action that we've never seen before. So there's a real opportunity. Um, I've come from a humanitarian background. There's, they use a horrible word called crisis unity. So an opportunity can come from a crisis where things are kind of molten changing. There's opportunity to make change. And, and unless we take that opportunity, then we're failing the people that we exist for. And do you, do you want to come in on there as well, Joe? I see you nodding. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it's, um, I think Sonia's really, um, highlighted uh, important things there. I think 
part I can't uncouple the fact that we are a relatively new team when we went into the pandemic so if you're saying you know what was your understanding before I think we were all growing our understanding our shared understanding um, with our chief exec um, Tom Lawson started in March 2019 um, Sonia and I were in an interim contracts and then got our permanent roles really soon before the pandemic um, so there's a lot of, of an organization going through change and growing our understanding coming into that period of disruption so um, I, I think we've needed to really grow our knowledge base from the beginning and to be able to do that with the equity diversity and inclusion lens really firmly on it from the start so that when we were looking at the the stats coming through and saying well this isn't right that you know certain groups are adversely affected are we surprised no but um, we need to take that really, really seriously and stop just almost leading it, uh, leaving it to, um, you know, everyone to apply for our grants openly, use our tools openly and somehow trusting an, <laughs> an, an equitable system that the right people just happen to be able to use our services. No, you know, we know that this, we are in a, a a country where there is white supremacy, you know, there is um, deep, deep inequalities and the system is stacked against different groups of people and we need we need to address that and I think we're we've been fortunate that we can build that into the really early stages of this, the, the leadership of um, the organisation and the way that it is uh, functioning now. I think it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think particularly for an organisation with, as you say, a long history, actually, I'm sure, you know, the organisation has evolved many times over over that period. Um, to to be talking in terms you know, he, uh, using, you know, words like justice and, and rights, which is really encouraging, but actually kind of highlights a sort of tension that exists within charity between the idea of charity as something that just kind of addresses the the symptoms particularly of, of an issue like poverty and the idea that it actually it's more about helping people to seek justice and the rights to which they're entitled and it seems as though the work you do at turn to us very much kind of sits right between those two things do you ever do you ever find that it's you know there's a challenge in balancing them um, between sort of the work that you do trying to help people make the best of the system as it is now and the work that you want to do pointing out how the system needs to change fundamentally? So I think justice rights and the way that we're working is changing. So I would say this is new to the organisation. So I think that's very real what you've highlighted. What we, what we do know, though, is if um, a person is taking a really hard choice between eating or paying their bills paying for their heating, getting their school uniform, they're not going to be in a place where they're going to be seeking other services, collectivising to challenge and demand rights, because you've got to deal with your immediate needs. So I think that that tension is real, but it's also unless you are supporting people with what their immediate needs and demands are to enable them to take choices and to challenge the system, um, then they won't be able to do that. And so I think it's a, I think it's an important tension to for us to continue to hold um, as we build our rights analysis and as we build our kind of thinking around, you know, and I think that's been a really fascinating conversation we've been having as an organization actually is is in type people do have a right to social welfare it's a it's a it's a fundamental right um, and there's 19 billion pounds of unclaimed benefits um, so so there's so many of those rights have been denied people um, and we're only there we are we only exist because those rights have been denied so the only reason we make grants is because people don't have enough food and that, that means their right to food has been denied them by the system and the structures around them um, but unless we support them to get that meet that immediate need for food the rights analysis becomes just a lovely theoretical conceptual thing that nobody will care about because they've got hard decisions to take in their actual daily real lives. Um, that might be a bit conceptual, but... Um. Uh, no, I mean, we're all about conceptual here on the podcast. It's always about sort of joining the dots between that. And I think engaging with these, you know, they're important issues for the sector at a theoretical level. And I, I feel as though some of these issues that felt quite conceptual 
you know, a few years ago and interesting to talk about, but hard to connect with the real world. I think the pandemic has really brought them to light. I think people's questions about, for instance, where the boundaries between our expectations of responsibility of the state and what charity provides and what we we can demand, you know, as a result of rights and what we should sort of expect uh, as a result of, of charity are very much front and center in in lots of people's minds and, and rightly so so i think it's a you know a great time to be grappling with these questions um, i don't know if you had anything you wanted to, to add on that joe yeah, i i would say you know i agree that we are that there is a tension and that we're continuing to work with that tension um and yeah i, I welcome the conceptual discussions and I think it's interesting to me looking at it from a co-production perspective so we do a lot of work with our uh, we call them co-production partners because that's what people would like to be called um, so people who have lived experience of poverty and financial hardship who work in, in partnership with us to um, shape our different areas of work and really broadly across the whole organization and um, you know people tell us that they want um, that they need money money in their pockets uh, and have needed money in their pockets at certain times but when we work with them around you know what it means to thrive what would help them have long-term sustainability then it's much more about relationships um, much more about like deeper like meaning and um, about feeling that they're on a positive trajectory um, things that I'm sure we can all like identify with so you know nobody really wants to continue to have to have you know grant funding or continue to have to have maybe you know um, benefits for for the longer term that's the it's something that is needed for some people but it's not everyone's goal um so how can we be part of that for people where you know social justice or an absence of oppression are things that that people tell us that they you know they want and need and and strive for it's not just us kind of um saying well that's that's what you must have um these are the voices of people telling us that regularly yeah, this brings me on to something I really wanted to ask you about. I think in one thing I've talked to a number of people on the, the podcast about in the context of things like the interest in participatory grant making is about models that you know shift power from those with the assets or the funders uh, when it comes to decision making. So you're not just moving financial assets, you're actually moving the power about how to decide what happens with them. And it, I thought it was fascinating to see that that is part of the, you know, core part of the strategy at Turn to Us. Um uh, have you found any challenges in doing that? Because it sort of strikes me that, you know, in in genuinely kind of going into models of co-production or giving over decision making to the people with lived experience, sometimes that is going to throw up things that you as a funder or a charity might not have expected in terms of what people identify as their key issues or what they would like to do with the resources. And, you know, how have you managed any any of that? Have you sort of found people have surprised you and has there been any any kind of resistance you know within the organization or have you had to have conversations about how you kind of manage some of those tensions um yes yes and yes <laughs> um <laughs> so our our journey our process with co-production is probably about just over 18 months um also um in terms of really investing in it bringing in a member of staff who anchors it within the team and um we've, we've now got you know our frameworks and our toolkits and we're starting to embed our processes and ways of working that we want to be consistent across the organization but it's it's been a a fun time to work a lot of that through and i've i know that Many organisations talk about wanting to co-produce, wanting to have different involvement activities, but there are often barriers about it being, you know, too hard, too complicated, um, or, or just not sure how to set it up. And, um, you know, it is really difficult, um, not because the will isn't there, not because we don't know that it's the right thing to do, but when you bring in um, people who are different, not part of your staff team, um, they're going to have different views and they're going to bring challenge and that can be really uncomfortable. 
um, and how do we sit in the discomfort and hear all of those those different um, opinions and then how do we synthesize all of that alongside the professional expertise of our colleagues and the data and insight that we have so that we have one kind of evidence base to make decisions um, uh, from because we're not saying suddenly that you know data doesn't matter anymore we'll just chuck that or we're not saying that our staff team are are not smart and capable we'll, we'll kind of chuck that um it's about bringing it together and really being one team with different expertise and different uh offers to share um and there is there is the potential to do lots of co-production and do it badly you know, and I've seen that and, you know, sometimes we get it wrong. Right. And, you know, we need to be really uh, aware of that and learning from that and, you know, pitfalls that we might we might um, bring, you know, only one uh, co-production partner into a workshop, for example. That's not going to get the best insights because they'll be kind of isolated person and we can't look to one person to bring all of that insight. Um, we might not prepare them well enough and then they're, they're not uh, able to think in advance and kind of come with their thoughts like ready made. We might not be able to support them enough over the long term. And we see that um, interactions where it's not just one isolated workshop, it's a series of, of um, interactions building to a, a different insights works better. Um, and, you know, we've done it all and uh, you know I've made all the mistakes I'm sure we'll make more mistakes but I think so far what we've been able to do is to provide a safe uh, container for co-production work we've been able to recruit diversity in our co-production team so there's different um, people coming from different perspectives bringing different lenses and we've been able to show people well you know we, what we learned from you was x and what we did was why. And that that piece of you said we did, I think is just the absolute, you know, it's so important. And that's where it gets really exciting because we are shaping our work based on uh, the voices of people who have lived experience. And, you know, and it's real, you know, um, and that, that's been really exciting. When it comes into territory of participatory grant making and and you know where where it really touches those elements of our work, um, that's that's where it goes into Sonia's uh, domain. So probably uh, yeah, uh, bow to her expertise of of where it might come into play there. Um, sure, I'll come in. Um, so. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I I feel, and you know, in conversations I have within the individual grant making sector, it is a very old sector. It's quite paternalistic. It's set up with a very Victorian mentality of supporting the deserving poor, um, and so moving well away from that narrative as a sector is going to be fascinating. But I feel that there's some energy, not just from Turntons, but some of, some of our peers as well and we're trying to look together about how we can be more transformational in our grant making so it's it's exciting um I think we will hit lots and lots of barriers and you know some really exciting work going on in participatory grant making but most of it the majority of it is with foundations and organizations the kind of community-based kind of you know building community initiatives rather than individuals um, but I am really excited to see where we could go with kind of place-based community-based participatory grant making it's not going to be a quick win because it's all as you know just based on relationships and trust uh, you know everything is if you want to make transformational change unless you build relationships from from the bottom up and really build that trust um, it's not going to happen and especially with individual grant making there can be you know a lot of accountability issues right you've got to be completely transparent there's the stigma that it gets attached to people when they ask for money or they're eligible for money that people feel that kind of tension within themselves about whether that's the right thing for them and the right thing to do and what if other people find out and there's a whole range of kind of stuff that goes with it 
um, that I think is, is critical for us to take our time to properly understanding co-production, uh, to properly work with partners and community organisations on the ground. We're a national organisation, we've got a very incredible national presence and huge amounts of data at a certain level, but we, you know, we haven't done very much kind of localised place-based work. Um, and to do participatory grant making, we have to, we have to be able to say, well, what's our role? in that we're not going to we don't want to take over local organizations we don't want to go stamping around um, in communities <laughs> here we are um here's our money you know that's just not the way that we want to work when we want to build equity within our partnerships with our co-production partners and with participatory grant making so i can see a really really interesting future in this space um, and i can see us working well with with others to to drive the sector to think differently uh, in much the same way as the foundation, the kind of trust that the sector has has been able to, to move. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and one thing that struck me when, when you were both talking is um, when it comes to participation, I think particularly around issues that, that have a focus on justice, there, there are existing organisations and community groups that are very relevant, but also increasingly there are informal networks and sort of more digitally enabled movements springing up and sort of mutual aid groups. So there's this whole proliferation of different approaches. Have you found that, that any of that has started to affect your work? Have you kind of uh, engaged with any of them and do they bring different viewpoints, you know, possibly quite challenging viewpoints, I would think, to, to how they think some of these issues should be addressed? Uh, the simple answer is no, not yet. Uh, we're very conscious of it. And there's, you know, I think there's a real opportunity where there's a, a much stronger volunteer community volunteering mindset and people want to continue that. You know, this pandemic has created these incredible, incredible groups. Um, but we haven't sort of the where we focused on is um, this new partnership way of working. So, we, you know, we have to take our time um, and the COVID, new COVID response program that I mentioned earlier. Um, and that's working with partners who are working mainly with Bangladeshi and black African communities uh, to see well, what are we going to learn from that? Um, and how are we going to learn with, with those communities as we evolve this process? It's, it, we've only just launched it and made our first few grants this, this week through um, one of our amazing partner organisations in Manchester. And I think what will come from that process is increased learning for us as a national organisation about how best to work with different communities, um, what's already existing that where we can kind of say, look, we've got these resources and tools and how can we support you to, to use them? Do we need to look at the language that we provide our tools in? Do we need to look at the accessibility of them? Um, you know, and, and there is a sort of that digital and digital exclusion tension that I know Joe will know a lot better. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's all it's all there. And I think the opportunity is, is and the potential is so enormous um, for us to support that work. Mm, absolutely um you, you mentioned digital there and uh, joe you might well have things you want to pick up on um yeah, about what sonia said there but i just also wanted to bring in some of that because i'm you know i think one of the things everybody's keenly aware of as a result of the pandemic um is we've all had to suddenly pile into the digital space and get used to doing all of these you know things online that we would have uh, traditionally perhaps done in in person and lots of charities have had to pivot all of their services and ways of working to, to digital and that's produced some incredible innovation it's produced lots of challenges as well how you know how have you been navigating that at, at turn to us I guess both yourselves as an organization but have you seen it have an impact on the people you're working with and what have you had to do to to sort of shift your your ways of working to to accommodate that well I think this comes into that right place right time piece again because we are an organization that you know firstly we give money to people so you know we weren't we didn't have to stop doing that um because of lockdown um we could continue all of that work and then um our other major um programs products are our benefits calculator our grant search and the information on our website so all of that could continue uninterrupted apart from some struggles right at the beginning of um, around March time where traffic was so high that we had to do an unexpected server migration. But we have an amazing tech team uh, who were able to support that and make sure that, that our infrastructure was was in place and we didn't have you know huge issues. Um, so yeah, I guess the, the 
the great thing I think about Town to Us is that they have seen them, we've seen ourselves as an organisation as being quite, um, I think the term was digital first um, for a while. Um, and we understand the benefit of providing scalable digital services. So our benefits calculator supported um, an additional 1.2 billion pounds to be claimed in benefits um, in the last year. Um, and given we know that there are, I think, 19 billion of unclaimed benefits, um, to be able to make a dent in that as one organisation is amazing. Um, and that um, tool costs about 350,000 a year to maintain. So we, we, if we're getting into social ROI stats, that's that's pretty great. We're, we're very happy to be able to offer that as a service. And our grant search also has a, a really um, important impact in matching people who are applying for, um, who, who need to apply for grants with any one of the thousands of funds that are available in the UK that they could apply for. So we have the, the central system that not only showcases the Turn to Us grants, but showcases the grants from these, these thousands of other funds, which is, is really important. So, you know, demand for those services really spiked and have continued to be higher than previous years all throughout this year and um, and that's a you know kind of positive news story going that next level down you know what what does that really mean does that mean that people who already had you know access to lots of resources lots of wi-fi lots of devices um were relatively comfortable at the beginning of the pandemic that they could go on and make sure that they were getting all the government help that they possibly could that they were setting up you know additional safety nets ahead of time you know we, we know that that could well be the case you know, because we um, having a, a very digital offer don't necessarily touch on those people who are excluded uh, or digitally excluded and um, are some of the people who are also experiencing other forms of exclusion. Um, so we have a contact centre. Um, I think we, we used to call it a helpline, but contact centre means that uh, it's a bit broader in terms of the channel mix. So that's a way for us to support people who might not be as confident with our digital tools or might not be able to use them at all. So that that provides a, a backstop for people. Um, and making sure that we are available to people um, through different means if they are not able to use digital it is an important consideration so how do we keep the scalability how do we make sure that we are not denigrating the the reach and importance of our digital tools and that we are planning for the future in terms of we know that the benefits calculator and the grant search have been really impactful what are the new innovations in digital that will be impactful for the next five ten years like that's really important work and we should be doing that at the same time how are we planning for those people who might not have access or might not have as much access? Um, and that is an important part of our innovation work for this year, actually, as we work on an innovation pipeline and start to look at those tools. Um, we've got a really interesting project at the moment. We're working in partnership with Nesta um, to digitize our grant giving process. And that means that for people who do have digital skills and access to technology, they might be able to um, you know, benefit from a more streamlined process and then free up some of our caseworkers to support people who are not so enabled, who need that extra support. So I think that's a, a great example of where digital can really liberate people, um, uh, liberate capacity to be able to support those who need more help. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, this is an expansive question, <laughs> Roger, you know, I could, there's, there's so many ways you can take it in terms of the different things that we want to look at. I think that in all of our work, 
you know, we're we're led by the needs. But I think what what Sonia's been um, sharing today is like it's also being led by the potential. You know, there's there's so much opportunity to really change, shift things in terms of the shit sector, shift things in terms of how we give support and, you know, shift power. And um, digital can be a tool to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Is there, do you want to pick up on that, Sonia? No, I, I, I just wanted to, to follow on and say it seems really interesting. Like I, part of the work you do, obviously, is in directly supporting people through through grants and part of it is about giving them information to access um their their rights and, and benefits and then it also seems as though part of it you're playing the role of infrastructure by signposting information about where else they could go to to get that support and it, it feels as though infrastructure has been a really important topic of conversation during the pandemic because i think suddenly everybody's realized quite how important infrastructure within civil society is and also how important it is to have it in place before crisis hits because it's slightly too late to be putting it in place once once you have to deal with the effects of a crisis do you do you feel do you get any sense that there's been a kind of renewed uh, appreciation of the importance of infrastructure and, and i guess do you guys see yourself to some extent as as partly a provider of, of infrastructure within the sector? I think we have huge potential to be part of those conversations and move um, towards better infrastructure because we have um, a, now a background and, and built up expertise in digital. You know, not, not all digital is infrastructure and I don't want to you know, denigrate you know, that importance of relationships because without having those relationships in place, we're not building and sharing anything. Um, but if we understand how, as we do, understand how digital products and, and digital infrastructure is built and um, developed, then we can play a really important part in that conversation. If we're supporting people to become financial, fin financially sustainable and to thrive and, and that we want people to have the autonomy to be able to take that on for themselves and drive that for themselves then you know we we need to be looking at shared infrastructure between charities and and grant giving organizations but also looking and paying attention to where um the public and um third charity sector meets um so if we're thinking about you know our benefits calculator and how we then send people towards the dwp and into the benefits system how can we be supporting those people to um navigate that system well and what is what responsibility can we take on and then what is actually you know the DWP's responsibility and their piece and you know we've been really lucky to be part of a project that was funded uh, through Catalyst and National Lottery Community Fund um, to work with other um, charities to look at what are the different ways that to support people um, to claim universal credit um, more easily and more quickly um, and you know that is something where we've built I think five prototypes and we've been testing out those prototypes and working with people who have either been navigating the benefit system now or navigating it recently so they were able to bring in their input and now we're working with the DWP to showcase those prototypes test them look at what we might what we could take forward together what they might take forward just themselves and I think that is been so beneficial and so fascinating because we don't you know we don't want to cut out the the real value that the charity sector can bring and say this is all on the the government to do I think you know in, in the current um, setup that that wouldn't be very effective um, but neither do we want to go off and say well in our charity bubble we're going to build loads of services that don't interconnect so I think we're looking for that interoperability really and um, and read across because I think that is the the approach that will help the most people um and that's got to be our aim yeah it sounds i mean fascinating to hear the work you're doing there in sort of uh, testing out prototypes and working with dwp i think yeah that's a really potentially valuable role for the sector to be playing and as you say um you know if at the end of that uh, it results in them 
taking it on and doing it themselves probably probably so much the better given the scale at which that can happen i'm, I'm aware i'm in danger of taking up too much of your time i just i wanted to to just ask a little bit about um funding and to some extent sort of fundraising i'm really obviously one of the things that's on the mind of lots of charities at the moment is that you know the impact the economic impact of covid and uh, lockdown measures and what that's meant in terms of the the options that are available for fundraising um have caused lots of challenges for charities but also there have been lots of shifts in the way that funders have been operating um perhaps you know Sonia, you could say a bit about what your main income streams have been traditionally at turn to us and you know because obviously you've got some assets of your own by the sounds of it because you're making grants but do you also have money from other grant makers or from corporates or individuals um yeah we we have been in a quite interesting situation in turn to us because we um traditionally have uh, we own some care homes and the Profit from those care homes also comes to us, and the care home industry has obviously been affected by this pandemic as well. So we have a slightly um, different dynamic um, from one of our kind of really considerable income streams that's kind of kept us going for for a very long time. Um, we um, traditionally our kind of fundraised income has hasn't has been about I don't know what a million pounds a year, Joe. I think it's about that. Um, and last year we had an exceptional year. Um, I think again back to Joe's thing of right place, right time. What people need in crises is information and money. They need to know what they're entitled to, and they need the money to get going. And we were just we we just felt like we were the right organisation, and we we had an appeal with the Telegraph that raised a really astonishing amount for us. Um, it was an unusual appeal. Uh, they don't usually do them just in the middle of the year, so we were very very fortunate. Um, and from there, we've, you know, we were able to ex expedite some of the work that Joe's been talking about because because we had a little bit of extra funding to do so. Um, the trajectory for the future is probably harder. Um, I think in a crisis, again, people kind of come around and then the money kind of starts to flow. Um, and then, you know, people kind of retreat back to business as usual. And, you know, the economy has been affected. And we've, I think we're kind of yet to see what the real impacts of that will be um, for, for funders. We do have some, you know, lovely funding from organisations like the Oak Foundation. and those, But, um, you know, we've, we've got a way to go, really, to kind of get back to the levels of, of where we were before, because, you know, of course, income is, is being affected and it's, it's a tough environment for charity. I think yeah absolutely have, have you felt that the income streams that you have I guess are more resilient in, in than if you were reliant on uh say face-to-face -face fundraising or trading income that was reliant on retail properties or, or or that sort of thing yeah I'm just not an expert here but I'd say yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes we've been very very fortunate that our investments that we've had because we have you know got endowments and investments haven't significantly been affected mm. um the, you know, the care home industry as I said has been affected and our fundraised income went up and now we have to see how we can sustain that so that we can keep the level of, of programmatic kind of interventions that and ambition that we have to really make these transform transformational changes to kind of continue. I think the only the only thing I'd add to that is really around um, fund, funding innovation or funding new things, which, you know, does require restricted um, pots often and requires work with with trusts and foundations it's really for me at the moment thinking about who those um who those funders are who are well placed to fund new things so you know i mentioned our funding from nesta uh to work on our digitizing our grant giving processes um i'm also uh working on a project to build uh what we call the local needs data bank so bringing organizations together to share their data and insight and we have five partners uh, it's a project with npc and um, battle uk uh, ymca british gas energy trust and we'll be bringing more in um, and we were really lucky to get some initial seed funding from barrow cadbury for that project so another funder is kind of saying well we can see the vision in the future and we're, we're interested in that obviously catalyst national two community funds digital funds there are funders that get the new and get the future but you know it's hopefully it's come across today Sonia and I have so many ideas of what is innovative what is new what is the future um it's about those those funders who who really get that um and want to work in partnership and are excited 
excited about it and we're, as we know when tech is involved we might not know exactly the bullet point list of everything that needs to be built at the beginning of the project so how are we open to really testing and learning and being more um in, in invested in the vision rather than that detailed delivery plan um so you know in a a time of you know maybe kind of uncertain finances and um an uncertain future be remembering that we are passionate and and looking forward to new ways of doing things um it's a attention definitely but it's it's a really interesting one absolutely yeah and then before I, I let you both go is there anything you finally that you want to to flag up that you've got coming out soon or any kind of final thoughts you want to leave people with really open I, i'll tell you this is a bit nerdy of me but um we've been working on our operational planning for the year ahead and i you know it's okay to be a bit nerdy i think because this is a charity <laughs> audience and lots of people i'm sure will be work, working on their plans so we're launching all of that at the beginning of April uh, or just after Easter and it's been a phenomenal amount of work to understand what what we're building on from the last year what we want to carry forward to the next year what's our new process our new ways of working and then making sure everyone in the organization is really clear and aligned to you know those plans and where we're going and how we're going to measure our success so coming from the impact side um looking at uh, what we're going to do quarter by quarter, how we're going to measure that in terms of like objectives and key results. So nicking some stuff from the, the, the world of Google there um, to bring that in. I'm really looking forward to seeing how that works and how, you know, our planning process links into our learning, links into our evaluation and then goes back into the planning um, and seeing how we can um, build um, this year and, and and forward so that is my very nerdy thing that that I'm excited about um, I guess from my side I might have already said it I think so I've kind of pulled a face when you asked the question I, like, I think I've said all this stuff um, but I think uh, for me I think really looking at how we make grants differently in the future and what does that look like with other programmatic interventions because we know that just building just giving finance or people increasing their finance isn't enough to thrive so how are we how are we integrating that work with our partners with communities with the with this infrastructure stuff you talked about earlier um that's the stuff i think that can really sort of start to transform some of the kind of paternalistic approaches that can start to tackle the negative narratives about poverty where people are really feeling ownership and their rights are being met and it's not a charitable act it's actually their entitlements and and that's what's really real um so i think there's a huge uh, potential i'm very excited about to see where that that might take us in the future yeah, absolutely. I think it sounds absolutely fascinating what you're doing. I'll look forward to, to seeing where it goes. Um, it just remains to say thanks ever so much to both of you for finding some time to come on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having a chance to chat um, and hopefully we'll get to meet in person at some point when that becomes a, a possibility again. We will definitely have to do that. It's great to catch up with you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Joe and Sonia for finding some time to come on the podcast. It's great to chat to both of them. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed listening to it too. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to various things that we discussed uh, that you can read more. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you want stuff that's more about sort of history and theory of philanthropy. If you've got ideas for people we could talk to on the podcast uh, or topics we could cover drop me a line at givingthoughtatcafonline.org other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts and i'll see you next time bye